0: Speaking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is science and postmortem survival, and my guest, Alan Ross Huguenot, is uniquely qualified to address this question. He has his doctorate in science in engineering. But in addition, he is a near-death experiencer, a former board member of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and he is a spiritualist medium and a minister, having been trained at the Morris Pratt Institute from my hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as the Arthur Findlay College of Psychic Science in the United Kingdom. In addition, he is author of The Death Experience, What It Is Like When You Die, and The New Science of Consciousness Survival and the Metaparadigm Shift to a Conscious Universe. Of course, (laughs) we're still here in the uh, lockdown period of COVID-19, so virtually all my interviews are internet-based, and now I'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Oh, it's fun to be here. I enjoy answering questions to anybody that asks.
0: Well, you have a very unusual background with, you know, an advanced degree in engineering, uh, a specialty in uh, nautical engineering, and uh, a deep understanding of physics. And at the same time, you you're working as a spiritualist medium, and I, I gather also you're credentialed as a spiritualist minister.
1: Yes, and it's a. Uh, it's it's really almost like um, you know they used to have a TV show I led three lives you know it's like I have two different two, two different personalities actually
0: <laughs>
1: when I'm operating as a medium it actually is like a different personality and uh, but I'm not uh, you know, I'm not uh, multiple personality or something but it's it's that way
0: all of this really began for you in 1970 long before Raymond Moody first wrote his book Life After Life about near death experiences when when you had what is very close to a classical near death experience yourself
1: yes that's true and and i it was difficult in the hospital at the time because nobody would believe me you know and their standard their standard procedure at that point if you had one of those was that you were delusional, and so they wanted to send you to the nut house, the funny farm. They still had funny farms then, and uh, they would send you there until you shut up about it, you know. And they'd give you various drugs to get you to shut up about it. And I said to the uh, psychiatrist, he came in, and he said, you know, this, you, you, you think you died and you came back, and you, you're acting like you're Jesus or somebody. I mean, nobody does that. And and I said, no. And I said, uh, "You're a scientist." I said, I, "I respect all your degrees and all of your your advanced uh, learning." And uh, I've been to Mexico, and you don't believe Mexico exists, and so you're telling me I haven't been to Mexico, but I've been there. And you won't. You need to step up and say, "Hey, wait a minute. Let me find out about this. What what is this Mexico?" And you're not. You're, you're avoiding your job. And of course, he didn't like me, so he wanted to commit me to the nuthouse. And so the the uh, my orthopedic surgeon, who was a much more Uh, savvy individual um, check me out of the hospital all of a sudden one afternoon. He comes running in, throws, I'm wearing a hospital gown, he puts me in a wheelchair, throws my clothes in my lap and takes me down the freight elevator out the back door. I jump in, or I don't jump in, I get put in my mom's car and we drive away. And It was because they were were trying to put me in, you know, commit me that day to, to the nut house. It's sort of very disconcerting to have them wanna to, wanna to tell you you're crazy when you know all you're trying to tell them is what you saw. I, I, I did that and I don't want to tell you about it. And they say, you're nuts. I mean, you know, you went to you went to Niagara Falls and you're trying to tell somebody how wonderful it was and it's beautiful, you know, and you and they don't believe you. It's not there. It doesn't happen.
0: Well, since you had that powerful experience, which I gather is is one of the major milestones of, of your life. Uh, the field of uh, near-death studies has really burgeoned. Uh, there's now an international association for near-death studies, and many, many, many scientific papers have been published. And you've served as a board member of that association.
1: Yes, that's true, and and uh, I've written a lot of things about it, and and uh, we, we study it in great depth. And um, it's it's uh, the, the thing that that proves to us that there is consciousness survival after physical death is the fact that all of these near-death experiencers are having the same experience a classical what Ribbon and moody that there's 12 things that happen uh and they all have parts of it they don't have, all have the 12 let's say but they'll have nine or eight or something and they're all having the same experience when they've never heard of it they've never talked to each other about it they, they this sneaks up on them you know, and then then they get together and they talk and they say, oh, that same thing happened to me. Well, then it's not a hallucination. It's not something that's programmed into us as a, a genetically. It's a real experience that we're having. So the, obviously the consciousness is surviving outside the physical. When the physical, According well, Penn Von Lommel says it this way, the brain doesn't work after about 30 seconds. It just stops. There's no oxygen. There's nothing going on. It flatlines and you're having an experience that you remember when your brain is flatlined and your heart's not even working there's no there's no respiration and you're having this you know this this thing yeah that's exactly it so it is the survival of consciousness when the physical body is basically dead by every definition we have of dead
0: well, he's referring to uh, cardiac arrest patients that that he stu- studied. In your case, you were in a motorcycle accident and uh, you hadn't suffered a cardiac arrest.
1: No, I was just in a coma in, in the ICU. Uh, and I was in a coma for 12 hours. And during that coma, this is when I had the experience. He studies uh, particularly cardiac arrest because they can really say they're actually dead. But that study is what Convinces us that the what occurred to me and happened to the people with the cardiac arrest is a real out of body experience.
0: Well, when we talk about the science of post mortem survival, I've heard you make an interesting argument. It's really one of the most interesting that I've I've heard, and that is you you refer to the law of conservation of matter and energy.
1: Energy has to, it, it's always there, E equals mc squared. That combination has to go someplace. You have to have m equals e over c squared or something. It's got, it's got to, the, the, the formula has to continue. And the energy doesn't disappear. It doesn't dissipate. we It can go beyond an event horizon into a black hole, but it doesn't disappear. It doesn't stop. It's still there. And even if we can't detect it in the black hole, it's still there. And so when you when your body dies and it just suddenly is lifeless the life energy falls out of it where does that go that life energy that mind that um and i I love to go back to max planck in 1900 he said we cannot get behind this fact that the matrix of matter is mind matter is built on mind that is the matrix on which the universe exists he said that as early as 1900 he didn't know about near-death experiences. He knew about the quantum, and he was working on these things. But mind is what is the whole universe is made of, and you can't get beyond that. So we 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 back away from from materializing or apprehending the physical, and we back away into another part of our same universe. I like to call it dark energy, or otherwise, and we we step back into that, and we drop the physical like a. Like taking off my jacket, if I was to take the jacket off and just leave it behind, that's what your physical is. It's a jacket you just throw away; you don't need it anymore, because you're now outside of what I uh, like. What Betty White says, um, Stuart White's wife, who was a medium, and then she worked from the other side back to here, uh, in the unobstructed universe is the book to read, and. She talks about there's two universes. There's the one you guys are, are stuck in over here in the physical, and then there's all the rest of it out here. And she says, I'm out in the rest of it, and I don't, I'm don't. i not obstructed by the physical like you are. In other words, she can go through a wall. We can't go through the wall. We bang up against it, and we can't get past it. And she goes right in, th- around through it. doesn't bother her because it's not within her perceptive level at her vibration or how you want to say it, her frequency her frequency is higher than that or lower than that or something.
0: It sounds like, with your background in engineering and uh, physics and uh, your work as a spiritualist medium, that you think that uh, perhaps we'll uh, arrive at a point where we'll have some sort of uh, technology that will enable us to communicate with people on the other side.
1: That is my hope, okay? And uh, I believe that, uh, you know... um, Gary Schwartz has been doing some work at University of Arizona on the um, cell phone, soul phone he calls it, um, and he's, he's, got, uh, he's, he's able to get um, indications from what he calls hypothetical people on the other side, um, he gets back signals from them, he's, he's working in in signal transfer, and he's got some pretty good stuff, and hopefully we'll be able to turn that someday. But this has been the goal. Edison had this goal also. He wanted to do this and, and so did Tesla. They were all trying to do this and it, um, we haven't brought something that, that's sold the rest of science on it yet. However, since we have discovered dark holes and dark energy, um, science is now realizing there's all this stuff they don't know. 96% of the universe they don't know. So these things are suddenly back in the realm of possibility so we're working on them
0: well let's talk about uh, your work as a, a spiritualist medium i guess you you went to get formal training this was some time after your own near death experience you you studied at various spiritualist schools to become accredited as, as a medium and i uh, guess that you must have had some natural talent to begin with
1: I think everyone has this talent. Uh, it's the sixth sense that we sort of ignore. Uh, I think in, when we come as children, we actually have much more of it. And we sort of put it in the back and forget about it and start using our five senses. Um, and the you know children have imaginary friends and things like that. And I don't know if they're so, they're so imaginary. I think they're just seeing on the other side. And um, anyway, so I think we all have this talent. And uh, we can use it. Uh, if we develop it. So what I did when I uh, began to approach retirement from the engineering, you know, active engineering field, um, I decided in 2006, I decided I would just study uh, mediumship because I knew Mm. that um, the people were on the other side. I knew we could go out of body. I knew that we'd been having lots and lots of people tell us they'd been getting messages and information from these other people that were over there. And so I decided, okay, so they are there, and I know they're there, and I've been over there, so why can't I talk to them? So I went into becoming a medium with belief that I can do this, okay? There's no reason I can't. I just have to learn how. And most people um, who do it, they say, well, I'm gifted. Well, no, they're no more gifted than the next guy. They just have sharpened it like... Like a, a, a concert pianist sharpens his ability by practice, practice, practice. And by that practice, you learn. So I, I found out that the uh, Morris Pratt Institute offered a correspondence course. It took about four years. Then we had to read 40, 50 books and, and, and report on them and, and know all about this, the whole background of, of spiritualism. So I signed up for that course and I studied it and I finished it and then um, the mediums that I work with, people like Suzanne geisman and stuff, they said you need to go to Arthur Findlay College, which is in Essex, England, and uh, in uh, Stansted in Essex. And so, I, I went there. I've, I've been there five times, and I stay a week or two weeks so every time I go there. And I've taken advanced classes and stuff. And this is kind of like graduate school—you go nine hours a day, and they feed you there, they house you there, everything you know. You know, and you. You're, it's very intensive, and you go for seven days for nine hours a day, and you're done with that session, and then you take another session. And and um, so, there I learned uh, from some very, very um, learned uh, mediums who have 30, 40 years in the business, and they really know what they're doing, how to do things like I was uh, in one class, I was bringing through. Uh, the grandfather of a, another girl in the class. There's about 14 of us in this advanced class, and and I was bringing through a grandfather, and and um, I said, "Well, his name's Frederick," and I see him wearing a three-piece suit, and he's in Glasgow, and and uh, and he's working in a shipyard. And of course, being a naval architect, I immediately said, "Oh, you know, I'm, you're making that up, Alan." But I didn't say it; I just thought it in my head. And the instructor, who's reading my thoughts psychically while well, she's reading the spirits' thoughts, also said. Alan, he's not going to show up for the nurse over there in, in the back of the room. He, you're a naval architect. He's going to come to you if you're on the platform. So he's coming to you now because you're a naval architect and he worked in a shipyard because you would understand him. Well, she said all that to me, and I never said anything about my doubts. She read my mind. She said, so now tell me more about him. So, okay, he's, he's, he works in the administrative department. It doesn't actually work out with the, with the ship's. Uh, themselves, and and uh, she says, so, so what kind of house does he live in? So I start describing the house that she's given to me this, you know, and she says, and uh, uh, what street? And uh, I said, uh, Oak, <laughs> you know, I mean, Oak Street, I mean, good grief, you know, this is the stuff that's coming through, and she's teaching me how to reach out and get that information, which is just beyond my imagination, and it's hard to tell it from imagination. I'm reaching out and finding that information that he's handing me, not not questioning it, just taking it and I, I, I brought through a lot of information and she's the type of lady that says, so there's a truck parked there, what's the license you know what I mean that's the kind of thing she does and and uh, so I learned how to go beyond my ego and surrender to the what's coming in and now now I'm tearing up because I'm moving into that direction like I say it's two different personalities and i I get emotional and and uh, very Intense. And when I'm talking to you, I'm trying to use what I will call the professor, and the other one's the medium. And the medium is a jellyfish, just a, you know, pushover. But it's so, so emphatic that, that um, I, I can't, um, I can't quite control everything. I have to, but it takes over like that. And that's how you really get the good information. Uh, they'll, they'll show you pictures, they'll show you all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's all in your imagination. It's happening in the, uh, in, in a certain little corner back here. And I can't remember all the parts of the lobes. But anyway, it's happening in a certain place where your, your mind, your brain, changes visual things into words. And that's happening at Broca's um, a or something like that. It's got a name. And that's where you do that. You change your thoughts, your, your visions, your, your symbols into words that you can say audibly
0: it sounds like uh, what you're doing is uh, at, at the conscious level you're not going into a deep trance and losing consciousness
1: no I don't do that I don't, uh, I'm doing it totally by uh, I'm I feel it all I, I feel it I'm, I'm uh, it's a sensory thing I I feel a name now how do you feel a name you know it's like people say oh well that that smell has a color. Yes, it does. You know, it's a, it's at the same vibratory level as. So I feel names. I just feel them, and it's it's very um, hard to describe. People think, oh, they're going to tell you their name. They're going to say it in your ear. No, I feel their name. I feel how they look. I feel the vision that I have of them, and it's not um, auditory. And it's it's just. Uh, It's
0: totally uh, feeling, totally sensory. From from, and most here. Well, I should probably just say, for benefit of our viewers, we we've switched rooms in order to uh, get a a better technical quality in our our signal, and uh, so I'll just. repeat where where we were before uh, you're describing the how the information seems to come at, to your chest and and it and how emotional it is for you uh when you do this mediumship work uh i'm under the impression that many of the messages uh, are all about love the people on the other side want to communicate how much love they feel for the people who are still over here
1: that's absolutely true jeffrey isn't it? Um, and it, it's, um, it comes into this area because of the chakras that are involved and it's, 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 a it's a life energy. Uh, if you consider that there are two kinds of energy, there's, uh, electromechanical energy and then there's life energy and life energy moves from the heart chakra. It doesn't move from the brain. Uh, the brain hardly puts out anything at all, but this, this area puts out all kinds of stuff and it takes it in and it's coming in here and uh, it's it had life has to do with love love is in life are uh, kind of almost inseparable and so They're bringing their love back for their survivors who are still the people who are still living here and They're trying to share that and so they use the life energy and it's a form of um, Energy we haven't yet measured uh, it I Believe it's in the dark energy somewhere. We will measure it. It may be a monopole in this uh, physical three D reality that we have, but it's really a bipole system and the other half of it's on the other side. So we don't detect it because we only get half of it. So we don't we detect something when when we have both parts, the positive and the negative. And we only got the positive or only got the negative. We only got a piece of it. We don't have the whole thing. So it's it's monopole instead of a bipole. And when we learn how to detect the whole thing, then we'll, we'll suddenly see, oh, look at all this energy going around between people. You walk in a room, you feel the guy on the other side, you know, you, he's in a bad mood, I can feel it. And, and, and that's the life energy that's moving. Well, that's how they communicate with us, through that energy. And when you love somebody, you get a whole lot more of that. You know, it's in, it's, you, you, you totally can read them from across the room, you know exactly what's going on with them. And it's all felt. It isn't said, it isn't visual, it's It's felt. And that's how they communicate with us. And so what's happening is when I'm being a medium, I'm communicating to the other side. And the person who's wanting to talk to them is here, but they're not feeling it, but I'm feeling it for them. So they come in and it's like they're holding my hand while I'm talking to the other side. I work through Helen. She's on that side, been there for over a quarter of a century. And she talks to me. And because she knows me really well and she can make me feel exactly what I'm supposed to say to this person. I'm supposed to say, I see a skier over there. You liked to ski, did he? Well, she's showing me something that reminds me of skiing. So I'll say that. And uh, I, I love the one I, when, when I was doing for a girl named Angela one time and I had her fiance who had died. And um, she um Helen gave me basketball. So I said, Oh, he likes basketball. And she said, He doesn't even like sports. And I, Oh, okay. So I, I couldn't figure that out. So after the, the session was over, I was talking with Helen at three o'clock in the morning and said, Helen, what was that about? And she gave me this thought. She said, His name was Jack. And the one basketball player that you've ever known personally at that time, and now I now know another one, but The only professional basketball player you know is Jack Sigma of the Seattle Sonics. And you knew him. And, you you know, uh, so I gave you basketball so you'd think of Jack. And then you'd say his name. And so I went back to Angela a week later and said, Angela, was his name Jack? She said, no, it was Jacques. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why. So you have to learn. uh, And so Helen and I learn over time what symbols will make me do what. And so she can touch me and and make me say things, so I get the correct signal and the correct vision and the correct symbol to say the thing that the sitter, the person, is trying to communicate to the other side will know. So I can I can bring through the name like that. If I could have said to Angela, his name is Jack. She just said, Oh no, it's Jock. But that's yeah, that's him. That's him. Okay. I want that kind of of information to come through so I can put tears in the eyes of this person so they realize oh you really are connecting with Jack, Jack or Jacques. And so that's how it's done. So it's so it's a deeply
0: emotional thing. Helen is your spirit guide. Yes
1: yeah, she's a spirit guide. She I've never met her in this life. She is my wife's mother and I met her daughter five years after she died. And then I married her daughter and then when I started doing mediumship, she shows up every time I go to a medium, here's Helen. And then, I remember this one Danish girl was giving me a reading at and She said, oh, that, that woman on over your left shoulder there, is her name Helen? you know, and, and, the, and she'll show up. And so one time I'm working with another medium who knew about Helen. And he says, oh, Alan, I've got this woman, but it's not Helen. Her name's Dorothy. Well, that's her middle name. Okay. She sneaks up and she pulls this stuff off and, and there she is. So how, how, you know, and people will say, oh, he's reading your mind and all this. No, she's really there. And so she shows up every time I go to a medium. And, you know, I sometimes I, uh, in the early times I would get information I didn't know about my mother-in-law that I never met. And so I have to go to my wife and find out, oh, yeah, that that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, she did that. Yeah, and and so she'd be telling me something that wasn't in my mind that the medium couldn't be reading from me, and then I go verify the fact later. So she's uh, she's works with me. So if you see it that way, if you see she's the medium, I'm the medium, and we're sitting next to each other, and then there's the the departed soul sitting there, and then there's the sitter, the one who wants to talk to the departed soul. There's four of us in a row. If we whisper whisper down the lane, you know, if we played that little game it will come out a little bit garbled on the end, wouldn't it? Because we're, uh uh-huh. And that's what some people say, well, you're wrong. And so one time I'm doing mediumship and I say to the woman, I have your mother here and I give her the name. And I'm talking about her mother by name. And I said, and she loved cooking. And the lady was a little distracted by her child playing or something, she said, no, she didn't, she hated cooking. She was in service in, in, a, in a large mansion and she hated cooking. That's what she did for her whole life. Well, what she had told me, what the, the spirit had brought through was that she was a cook. And I colored it by saying she loved cooking. I, I put the, she loved it in there. That, okay, so that's the garble that happens. And so then the lady decides I'm totally wrong because I said the word loved cooking. I, she was a cook she was a cook for her whole life i had a fact here that was real and yet the lady dis- discounted the fact said you're no good i've already given her the name she's a cook you're no good you don't know what you you know and and so it she didn't believe in the connection anymore and there it goes and so that's the hardest part of mediumship is to work with the person here and their skepticism because I may bet. I may get half the things right. Then I'm batting 500, and you know most people don't bet above 250. You know they get a quarter of it right. In the baseball players, and, and sometimes I'm 85 percent right, and, and there's only 15 percent that's garble that's in there. But the garble, if you know, people will jump on it and say not not true, it's no good, and that's very disappointing.
0: Well, I'm under the impression from people I know who have become spiritualists that uh, probably the most convincing aspect for them isn't the information, it's the emotional connection. that These people really believe that they are um, working through unresolved emotions, typically that they have with their deceased parents.
1: I truly believe there is no uh, retribution. There is only remorse. And we, you know, suppose you were the, the an SS officer who ran a Nazi death camp. What remorse you must have, and how long does it take to work through all of that? And so when we first get over there, what the Catholics uh, identified as purgatory doesn't re- exist in that sense, but it, it, it does exist in the fact that we have to work through that. The, the near-death experience has the life review, and the life review is just a a foretaste of what goes on for quite a little while after we get over there, of working through the remorse about this life so that we can move on from this life. So we're still kind of oriented to this life and tied to this this physical life that we had while we work through that remorse and we work through the, the we, we look at everything we ever did. That's in the near-death experience in the life review. It's You look at everything from the other person's side of the table instead of your side. And how did they feel when you said that? And why did you say that? And, and you have to work all of that out. Um, I love what uh, um, um, Banks says, um, Francis Banks and, and Helen Greaves wrote a book in 1967 called uh, The Testimony of Light, which Helen, uh, Francis Banks is the, the, the deceased who's writing back from the other side and describing. She says, you get two blueprints, how it should have been and how, it, how you did it. And you've got to look at those two blueprints. And she says, it, it's sometimes just devastating to look at it. And she said, many people, when they first get to the other side, can't hardly look at it. they just is so painful. They just they, they do anything else. They just wait. And so it takes them a long time to work through the remorse because they have to look at everything. The other one that Frances Banks brought up was that she had an SS officer she was talking about. And she said, with the SS officer who had been, this was 1967, you know, and so it had been 20 years, more than 20 years, he had been just over in the shadows there. And with him was the Jewish lady that hated him because he killed her husband and children. But her hatred kept her with him. She needed to release that hatred in order to, to move forward. Her husband and children were already over there, and she spent 22 years with this, with this SS officer, you know, hating him you know viscerally hating him and she's missing out on, on spending the but times are different over there but but spending the time with her husband and her children which is what she was mad at him for so but she has to go over why she's mad at him in order to move on and that remorse thing is very difficult and some people spend 50 years over there other people get right through it because they say okay I'm gonna you know, I got, got to improve we're evolving and and that's what it's like And she's Anyway, if you, if you want to know what it's like on the other side, do read the book, "The Testimony of Light" by Helen Greaves, nineteen sixty-seven.
0: Well, I'm under the impression that uh, time and space are very different over there, and that there's also uh, maybe more important than time and space completely is this dimension of consciousness. I think you, you referred to it as a vibration.
1: Well, it is. It's a frequency, and uh, to. Our, our understanding of consciousness is now moving forward um, on, the, on the cutting edge of, of parapsychology. It's moving forward quite rapidly. We're beginning to, we're making inroads, we're beginning to understand it. And the, that part of the universe is entirely conscious. The consciousness, if you think about what Max Planck said, that, that mind is the matrix of matter, matter can't exist except as apprehended consciousness. We bring it in space and time and it manifests for us, and we see it there. And if you think about the universe as appearing for you from the dark energy, it appears for you, it materializes in front of you uh, the way you wish to see it. And some of that wish is is corporate. Um, You know, we do it as a whole group of all of us at once, thinking about how we want to see it. And it materializes out of the dark energy and it, it uh, annihilates, and it comes back, and this is doing it 23 septillion times a second. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, just, it's really vibrating. And you think, well, I'm sitting on the chair. The chair didn't disappear. No, it did. It disappeared and came back again, I and mean, it's, it's rematerializing all the time for you, 23 septillion times a second. People say, how fast is that? Well, it's hard to explain. <laughs> I put a bunch of zeros, you know. Uh, so the um, you have to realize that the, the universe appears around you and you can influence that. And consciousness is what the universe is made out of. The, um, the string theory, if you think about the string in string theory, you, if you can picture a string that's vibrating but there's no string there, just the vibration, that's a consciousness, that's a thought, that that's, that's, has no physical reality. Okay, that's what the world, the whole universe is built on consciousness. And it's a thought. Thoughts are things. And once you get all this stuff, all this esoteric, metaphysical descriptions and and language, makes more sense. It all adds up and fits together.
0: It sort of reminds me of uh, the Cheshire Cat in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) Only the smile is left.
1: That's right. There is no the cat disappears and just smile. That's a good way to describe it. It's the, um, the, and once you, you get all this, you know, and that's what I, I, I wish we could bring it to people. The peace, which passes all human understanding. That's what comes is this, this super peace that the Cheshire Cat has just sits there. The fool on the hill. He is so happy. He is so peaceful looking down at everybody. Um, that's what it is. And. People say, oh, you're such a fool. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I am the fool on the hill. And it's a great place to be. Um, so, I, But then I shift back to the professor, from the medium to the professor, and I do want to put this into a context people can understand. So what I would recommend that many people do, and it, it may be being ignored these days because it's a little difficult to work through, is, is the unobstructed universe, the Betty book and the unobstructed universe, and the other books by Stuart White that go with it. Um, they they're, they're in a series, and if you you pull out the series, um, they're they're just a great set of books. And the the Unobstructed Universe explains so much. If you have you sometimes have to <laughs> digress and go study what what did that mean, you know, with some of the scientific terms. Or once you get them, Stewart and Darby are talking in there all the time, and they put in these um, scientific terms, and you have to know what they are if you can bear with yourself and go get the dictionary and look that up and figure out what was that term? What did that mean? And then you you can Google it. You can you can work at it. A wonderful book, The Unobstructed Universe.
0: It's, it's a book that uh, has been recommended uh, to me for many decades, as, as a matter of fact. Um, you wrote about your own near death experience. And you described it in very different terms. As I recall, you, you made the point to saying that here in the physical world, we think of objects as being outside of ourselves and we study them as, as you just described, you know, look up the dictionary definition and, uh, but on the inner planes, you don't study objects uh, or individuals; you become them. You you learn of them from the inside. So, y- when you encountered this being of light, it wasn't so much you encountering the being as you becoming that being.
1: It was me returning to myself. I had known the being of light for at the, my description for eons. So I must have been around too, and I've I've been around for eons and and. Here, I, I just bumping into myself hi there you know oh it's you you know and and uh, you see an old friend like that you haven't seen in a in hundred years you know, it's like oh my it's you hi and and it was like that no introduction you know and everybody says well who was it that you saw was it Krishna was it Jesus what, who was that was it Buddha and oh it was me and I'm back to myself I'm home home like you could never understand. We all want to go home to the real place where we came from. That's it. I was there. I was home again. And then I got this message from the being of light. You know, uh, and you get it by ESP. You don't get it by hearing it or anything. The message came. You have to go back. I said, no, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back at all. I like it here. I'm stay right here. I'm home. And The being said, and I'll, I'll say he said, but it was—it all came as a feeling. Um, you're not done. You're not done with what you were put there to do. You have a destiny. You must go back and fulfill it. So I'm here, and that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, the way that it works, it's always becoming. It's always about being. But we—we we have a feeling that we want to become even more than just be. Just be. I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm just being here. I'm bored. I want to become, we want to, we want to grow. We want to, we go further. We want to discover more. And that process that going down the path is what life is. Life is the journey on the path It is not arriving. I, I sail, you know, I'm a sailor. And when we're out in the boat and there's a little kid in the boat, he says, when are we going to get there? I said, well, we're there. We're sailing now. He said, no, no, when are we going to get there? We're we crossing this water. When do we get there? We say there, and it is being there. It is the becoming. It it we become at all the time, moving along that journey. And the guides on the other side show me each step, one step at a time. And I have to look at the step, and then I have to. You know, the the hard part is there's the step. I have to take it. It's in <laughs> front of me. I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to take that step. And then I, and in each step, when you get to look back in hindsight, you can, you can see what happened in hindsight, the why it was that you took the step. You couldn't see it going in, but you get to look back and see it. And then the next step comes. And again, they handed me another step and I have to take that step. And if I try to figure it out, I'll be wrong. I'll oh, see this as an evil thing when it's a good thing. I'll be wrong if I try to figure out what, if I take that step, what's going to happen. And we always try to second guess ourselves. Well, I, I'm going to figure that out before I make that move. No, the move is there. The door is open. The window's open. Take it. Jump out the window. Go. And you will be absolutely amazed by what happens when you take the step. And if you don't take it, you're stuck. You're stuck in the box. You can't, you can't get over there. You're in a prison. But if you take the step, amazing things happen, things you could not have foreseen. Just going down that street, here comes somebody you needed to meet that you never ever would have met. I was, I was watching a, a documentary on Westinghouse. And when he went to Pittsburgh, the first days there, he's um, he meets the guy that he spends the rest of his life working with this guy as one of his investors. And he's just walking up the street and he asks directions from the guy. How did the guy get on the street? That, that he's going to, you know, they, they make the, this this super relationship comes out of this. Hey, do you know how to get to the, you know, I mean, there's the guy. And when you look at life and understand the synergism that happens, that man was walking down the street so Westinghouse could meet him. It was, it was just the way it was. And there was Westinghouse. He got himself to Pittsburgh. He got on that street and he asked the question. And there it was. Those things happen. When you take the step, if you don't take the step, you won't be on that street, and you won't see the guy. And then you close yourself off in this little box. You have to take the
0: step. So, of course, it's a different step for each person.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> we each have our own destiny, which is based a lot on on what we, who we are, and and, and how how we're put together, and our our state of it, where we revolve to at the moment. And uh, people like to say we signed a contract. No, I like to say there were two blueprints. There was the one that we could have been and the one that we did. And it's all up to us with free will. It's not predestined with a contract that I have to do it. It's That's my destiny if I choose to do it, if I will to do it. And if I. So the choice is always a free choice. We have free will. And. We're not driven. We don't have to rob the bank. We wanted to rob the bank. Okay. There's this, This, you know, when somebody says, oh, I couldn't help it. I robbed the bank because of the way my father treated me. No, we chose. We did. We made the move. And we can't blame someone else or something else. It's us that chooses. We have free will. And we're not predestined determ- uh, determination that, that the, the world is determinant. Is it something I can and disprove, and I do in my book. I show you how I, I take the the first principles of physics, and I take each one of them out and show how they're presumptions and assumptions, and they're they're not. Um, we can no longer uphold them with our quantum physics. They don't fit, and so if we're going to believe in quantum physics and relativity, then we cannot believe in those things. They're not real. It was, a, it was a big it was a hard one for Einstein. he worked on this all the time. He couldn't he, he wanted to be a materialist. and he, he, he knew he'd lost it and he couldn't go back there and he struggled with it. And um, David Bohm and him spent a lot of time trying to work it all out. Um, and for physicists, you need to read all of David Bohm's books. I'm sorry, you just need to. You need to understand the implicate order and the explicate order. You need to understand that. There's the potential of the implicate order, And there's the explicate order, which we precipitate through the the collapse of the wave function. We precipitate it, we create the world that's around us, and we do it from the potential. And the whole universe is standing there as potential for each of us to develop that potential. It will just materialize and manifest in front of us. I spend a lot of time uh, trying to figure out how to, to say this to people in ways that is going to make sense to them, that they're going to understand. People come up to me and they say, "Well, uh, you know, I'd love to read your book, Alan, but could you could you put it into three or four sentences so I can just get it?" <laughs> and I say, "It's not like that. What you're saying is I'm too damn lazy to do my own homework. I don't want to learn. I don't want anything to change because I have to m- might have to learn a new software program in order to do the thing. I don't want to I don't want to take the time to learn. I'm too busy." Well, if you want the the feeling and the peace that passes on human understanding and the, the confidence about life that this is wonderful, you're going to have to do the homework. And the homework takes some time, and I can't put it in three sentences. I might be able to put it in three volumes about three inches thick, you know, and, and put it all in there. But if, if you will do the get on the path and take each step as it's put in front of you and do the homework, do the reading, do the looking up in, of the definitions to get it. And stop being lazy about it and say, well, I'm gonna spend two minutes on this, then I gotta go somewhere. No. If you're gonna go on this path, you have to dedicate to the path. You have to, to make it part of you. And then it'll work. Then you'll get it. Then you'll understand it. And everybody wants to do everything so fast, just like so one thing, just like that. You can't.
0: It won't. <laughs> Let me ask you a tough question. Um Pretty much all the mystics, and I know you've kind of been hinting at it uh, yourself, will tell us that uh, everything is one. It's all one. There's one consciousness, and that's the universe. Uh, that being the case, why why are we uh, encapsulated in our own individual bodies? Why why are does it seem as if we're all separate individuals when we're really all one?
1: Oh, uh, that's a great question. You know, we've been asking that one for several thousand years. Um, why was this done? The, the best definition or the best way I can try to explain that is, let's suppose that, um, let's imagine that you're God, okay? That God that, is a being like us. And he experiences things. He, she experiences things, feels things. And God's sitting there one day and has a thought. I would like to know what it would be like to be the victim who was murdered. How does that feel? And I would also like to know how does it feel to be the guy doing the murdering? How does that feel? So in order to do that, I have to have a murderer and a murderee. You know? <laughs> and, and so this brilliant consciousness, God, thought up all of these billions of people doing all of these billions of things so he could feel all of that and see how all of that was. Now, that makes sense to me, that, that, hey, I want to have it all. I want to have it all, okay? Yeah, he wants to have it, he, she wants to have it all, and does this, creates the whole universe.
0: Alan Huguenot, this has been a delightful conversation. We, we've covered a lot of ground here.
1: Any, any question you have that, that, to finish this off?
0: What you've been saying reminds me of, I think it was Einstein actually, who said the most important question we can ask is, is the universe friendly? And I've definitely got the impression from you that uh, the answer is yes.
1: It's yes, if you see it that way. And it's all about your perception. How do you see the universe? What does your culture give you that causes you to fear or love? If you see the universe, if you see it as a wonderful, loving place, then that's what it is. If you see it as a terrible place, then that's what it is. So it's up to you, with your free will, to choose that it's a wonderful place. And it is. It's a place of love. It's friendly. It likes us. Uh, Will it communicate with us? Yes, if we let it. So, um, what I would say to everybody, uh, in closing, I want to say this to everyone. If you fear death, start studying the things I'm talking about, because I have no fear of death. My wife says, oh, you, you can't wait. That's right. I was home and I want to go home again. And so that's how I felt when I was there, I was home. I did not want to come back here. And so when it finally comes my ultimate, you got to go, I am happy, I'm excited and I can't wait to get there. Now that's a much better way to look at death than saying, oh, I I might die, I might die. No, I can't wait. I'm being patient. I've learned patience, and I'm willing to live out my destiny. But I really just anticipate getting back there. It's a wonderful place. The universe is friendly. It does love us.
0: Well, Alan, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome, Jeffrey.
1: We'll talk again.
0: And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.